The March 16, 1976 resignation of the British Prime Minister, Harold Wilson, was decidedly unexpected. At only 60 years old, many thought he'd remain in power for several more years. Two months later, on the morning of May 12th, a political reporter named Barry Penrose received a bizarre phone call. On the other end of the line was a man claiming to represent Harold Wilson. He wanted to know if Penrose would join Wilson for drinks that evening. The invitation was genuine, but Penrose was suspicious. He couldn't imagine why the former prime minister would want to speak to him, of all people. Penrose had only met Wilson once, in a brief moment when he'd asked the prime minister how he felt about winning the 1974 election. It wasn't like Penrose had made a memorable impression. More so, he was worried that he was walking into a trap. Politicians sometimes used flattery and intimidation to get favorable press. If Wilson tried to pressure him into doing something, he didn't think he could say no. So Penrose invited another reporter named Roger Cordier to come along. At 6 p.m., they rang Wilson's doorbell. Wilson came out to meet them. He was seemingly unsurprised by Courtier's presence. With a smile and a handshake, he led them upstairs and poured each a glass of whiskey. Wilson rolled his cigar between his fingers and weighed his next words carefully. British democracy, he said, was in grave danger. Someone had tried to overthrow him and the democratically elected cabinet. Now he needed the press's help to expose this conspiracy to the world. Penrose and Courtier tensed up. The theory sounded absurd, even paranoid. But then, Wilson revealed a more shocking accusation. The traitors were inside his own government. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode on James Harold Wilson, Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1964 to 1970 and again from 1974 to 1976. Wilson distinguished himself as a pragmatic socialist, provoking the ire of liberals and conservatives alike. This episode will follow his journey from humble beginnings to unexpected retirement. Beset on all sides by enemies, Wilson's administration faced betrayal, scandals, and economic catastrophe. Next time, we'll unravel three conspiracy theories regarding Wilson's time as prime minister. First, that a cabal of powerful people tried and failed to orchestrate a coup in 1968. Second, that Wilson was a secret Soviet spy. And finally, a claim advanced by Wilson himself, that members of his own secret service plotted his downfall. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. 
Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. A reporter once asked Harold Wilson why he chose to go into politics. He replied that it was in his blood. One of his uncles campaigned for Keir Hardy, founder of the British left-wing Labour Party in 1895. Another family member was a Lord Mayor of the city of Manchester, near the town where Wilson was born in 1916. Still, the imposing halls of Parliament seemed like a distant dream for young Harold. His dad was an explosives chemist. His mother was a homemaker who came from a family of blue-collar workers. Harold moved around a lot as a child, so he had difficulty making friends. He was also shy, especially in large groups of people. As he grew older, he channeled that unease into a manic energy. His peers saw him as a know-it-all, someone trying too hard to impress others. Harold's commitment to academics shined, especially when it came to numbers. He also had a remarkable ability to remember facts and trivial details. Harold's father, Herbert, encouraged him to put these skills towards a higher education. Herbert held resentment that his own lack of schooling had kept his family living hand-to-mouth. He was determined for his son to make a better life for himself and help others along the way. As part of that goal, Herbert introduced Harold to the world of politics. He taught him about the history of the Labor Party, which represented the interests of trade unions and blue-collar workers like coal miners. The Labor Party believed it was their duty to look after society's most vulnerable. Harold was eager to start pursuing politics once he entered college. Unfortunately, though, he couldn't get a scholarship to any of his top-choice universities. So, in 1934, he attended Jesus College at Oxford. At the time, it was considered a second-rate school for future school teachers and priests, hardly the breeding grounds for high-ranking politicians. But an education was still the undeniable chance to escape his blue-collar roots. Plus, he was thrilled to learn there was a Labor Party club on campus. Although, according to his memoirs, Wilson became disillusioned after just one meeting. The problem, he said, was this Labor Party group was full of communists. As a socialist, Wilson believed the government should ensure everyone the right to food, shelter, and a decent living. 
This was different from communism, where the government controlled everything. So when he saw the communists at this club defending a bloody revolution, just like in Soviet Russia, it sickened him. There wasn't a place at the college for moderate activists like him, so he stayed on the periphery and devoted more time to his studies. In his free time, he played sports and pursued a woman named Gladdy Mary Baldwin. When Wilson first encountered Mary at his father's tennis club, it was love at first sight. Three weeks after they met, he declared that one day he'd be her husband. Their tennis games were soon capped off with long walks. They talked endlessly with the ease of two old friends. Since his arrival at Jesus College, he regularly sent her love letters. They eventually married on January 1st, 1940. After graduation, Wilson became the assistant to famous economist Sir William Beveridge at Oxford's University College. Yet he quickly discovered that Beveridge was arrogant, rude, and intolerably callous. Despite his mentor's abrasiveness, he learned about global markets and the impact of social programs like welfare. Wilson hoped his time with Beveridge would lead to a doctoral degree in economics and a professorship at a top-tier university. But the fate of the world was about to shift. On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. That same day, Harold Wilson was presenting his research on trading cycles and unemployment at an academic conference. But his mind was elsewhere. A war was coming, and he wanted to be a part of it. Like many of his peers, Wilson felt a patriotic fervor rising within him. He despised the Nazis and wanted to do his part to stop them. So he went to the Army Recruiting Board and tried to enlist as a specialist. To his disappointment, the Army didn't see value in his economic expertise. His boss, William Beveridge, felt differently. He knew that victory depended on the UK's ability to produce goods like weapons and clothing. That was only possible through economists who understood market forces. Using this mindset, Beveridge secured himself a high-level position in the government. In 1941, he got Wilson a job working under him. It wasn't the front lines, but it was a chance to help the war effort in a meaningful way. Wilson's official title was head of the ministry's manpower, statistics, and intelligence branch. The UK had a shortage of skilled laborers, and Wilson's department needed to find out why. The job proved to be a useful stepping stone. In 1942, the Mines Department, which was responsible for overseeing wartime coal production, needed a talented statistician. They chose Wilson. His task was unglamorous, but vital, calculating monthly production figures for coal. In 1942, the UK had approximately 1,900 coal mines operated by more than 1,000 different companies. Someone needed to compile that data and tell the Prime Minister how much fuel the country had to spare. British families depended on that coal to heat their homes once winter came, not to mention it was also crucial to the war effort. Without coal, there'd be no electricity to power the factories that produced weapons, uniforms, and aircraft. In a sense, the outcome of the war fell into Wilson's hands. The work was relentless. There never seemed to be enough coal. 
even with government rationing, they still came up short. Granted that thousands of coal miners had joined the war effort, there simply wasn't enough manpower to keep up with the demand. So in December 1943, the Minister of Labor conscripted men from the general population and assigned them to work in the mines. The pay was terrible. One miner said he received only 35 shillings a week. Not to mention, coal mining was extremely dangerous. Miners died from floods, cave-ins, suffocation, in addition to the long-term diseases caused by inhaling poisonous dust. After months of these conditions, the coal workers went on strike. Seeing a pivotal moment, Wilson stepped up to help negotiate a way out of the crisis. He recommended a pay increase and a blanket minimum wage for the miners. It was his first taste of real politics. When the dust settled, Wilson's interest in higher office was renewed. He wanted to be a champion of the working class and the nation as a whole. In 1944, Wilson asked the Labour Party to back his candidacy for a seat in Parliament. According to Wilson's biographer, Ben Pimlet, he'd rejoin the party because he believed it was the surest way to secure political power. As for where Wilson would run, though, that was up to the party. They chose a district called Ormskirk near Liverpool. Still, Wilson was a long shot. While he was originally from that area, nobody in Ormskirk knew who he was. He'd made a few friends during his short stint in the Ministry of Labor, but no one who could pull any strings. At just 28 years old, he was too young to have made a name for himself and too poor to pay for advertising. To add to this, his personality was a glaring weakness. Few were roused by his dry and academic stump speeches, filled with facts and figures about economics and trade. In short, Harold Wilson was kind of boring. But the 1945 election was anything but. There were more empty seats than candidates to fill them, and Wilson's chief opponents in the right-wing conservative party were busy fighting among themselves. Ballots were cast on July 5, 1945. As the results trickled in, Wilson felt a wave of excitement race up his spine. It was the feeling of victory. Harold Wilson was going to Parliament, and it was going to be one of the most difficult jobs he ever faced. Coming up, Wilson enters a political minefield. Massive spiders, fierce crocodiles, violent kangaroos. With all of the dangers lurking within Australia, one species remains feared above the rest. Humans. Hi listeners, it's Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Crime Down Under. Every Sunday on Spotify, take a trip to the oldest continent for some of the most shocking true crime cases in modern history. Featuring a compilation of episodes from shows across Parcast Network, Crime Down Under exposes the vicious serial killers, mysterious disappearances, and terrifying crime families whose stories still stop Aussies dead in their tracks. From the beaches and deserts to the cities and suburbs, the land down under may be vast, but the horrors are hiding around every corner. Catch a new episode of Crime Down Under every Sunday. Listen free only on Spotify. 
Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. And now back to the story. By age 29, James Harold Wilson had risen from humble beginnings to become one of the youngest members of Parliament. Now, he was ready to carve his path to power using the Labour Party. His timing was perfect. In the United Kingdom, parliamentary elections were every five years or less. The political party with the most wins had majority control over the government. That party then appointed their own prime minister, who picked their cabinet. In 1945, it was the left-wing Labour Party's time to shine. This was good news for Harold Wilson. The new prime minister, Clement Attlee, remembered him from Oxford University College, back when Wilson worked as Beveridge's research assistant. As a result, Attlee gave Wilson the position of Secretary of Overseas Trade. Wilson oversaw matters like trading licenses, exports, treaties, and more. He even once handled a request to import sea lions for a zoo. But his main goal was far more important than trade paperwork, trying to save the United Kingdom from bankruptcy. When World War II ended in 1945, the British economy was in shambles. The government accepted a nearly $4 billion loan from America, worth some $60 billion today. But by 1947, that cash was nearly gone. Britain was on the brink of starvation. The country needed basic supplies like wood to build houses and grade to feed livestock. But the wheat it bought from America was too expensive. So on April 18, 1947, the Prime Minister sent Harold Wilson to Moscow to see if he could make a better deal. The Russians had plenty of grain they were willing to sell for cheap. But in return, they wanted Western technology. Their request included industrial parts, engines, and even fighter jets, which at the time were a brand new invention. The idea of selling cutting-edge weaponry to Soviet Russia was a hard pill for the British military to swallow. They believed a war with the USSR was on the horizon, and selling their potential enemies' weapons seemed undeniably foolish. Wilson was pressured from above to scuttle that part of the deal before any technology changed hands. The stakes were high. If he failed, half of Britain could go hungry. With this on his shoulders, he faced negotiations with the Soviet trade minister, Anastas Mikoyan, a savvy Armenian revolutionary who'd survived longer than most of his colleagues. He once told Wilson that a senior Soviet minister had been shot at one of their cabinet meetings. Wilson didn't let these stories intimidate him. Despite being a novice, the 31-year-old held his own against Mikoyan. Each visit to Moscow was a marathon of nuanced discussions, financial bargaining, and, of course, vodka. Wilson later bragged to his friends that he was the only British minister that drank a Russian minister under the table. And it seemingly paid off. In December, Wilson finally closed the deal. 
In exchange for a huge shipment of grain, Russia received industrial machinery and credit with the UK's main bank. To the military's delight, not a single jet airplane exchanged hands. Wilson's first major political victory seemed to set the course for the months ahead. His speeches were getting sharper, more accessible, and far more entertaining. His star was rising. It was around this time that the Prime Minister promoted Wilson to head the Board of Trade. It was a senior-level position that put him in charge of overseeing hundreds of industries, from railroads to movie theaters to household items. By this point, the British populace had spent nearly a decade living under extraordinary wartime conditions. They were tired of going to the supermarket and seeing empty shelves. Rationing was a big sticking point. The war was over, but citizens still had to use government coupons to purchase things, like coal and clothing. And Wilson was in a unique position to help. In November of 1948, he slashed rationing and price controls on dozens of industries. He let people buy what they needed, when they needed it. This upset the more socialist members of his party, who believed the government needed to keep control over the economy. But for most people, it made Harold Wilson look like a knight in shining armor. However, removing these controls didn't give the country the economic boost Wilson had hoped for. In 1948, the loans from America ran dry. The country was again facing insolvency, and U.S. creditors came knocking. It was time for England to pay up. The Americans came with their own proposed solution to Britain's debt, devaluation of the nation's currency. At the time, one British pound was worth about four U.S. dollars. Because of an arrangement made in 1944, that value was fixed in place rather than tied to the market, meaning it could only be changed if the British government purposely did so. If Prime Minister Attlee made the pound cheaper, it would raise the value of the dollar. A car made in the UK would suddenly cost less than one made in the US. In theory, this could help the British sell more cars because buyers often prefer cheaper items. Attlee based his decision on the recommendation of Sir Stafford Cripps, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and Wilson's boss. But Cripps was in poor health, and by mid-July, he delegated the decision to his three subordinates, Harold Wilson, Hugh Gateskill, and Douglas Jay. Gateskill and Jay argued for devaluation, but Wilson objected. For the British people, devaluation felt like the kiss of death. To them, cheaper currency meant inflation. Imported items would become more expensive. It was also psychologically damaging. A weak pound was the mark of a weak country. Still, it appears Wilson didn't have a better solution at the time because by the end of July, he also agreed to devalue the currency. Wilson's hesitancy left his colleagues feeling like he was unreliable and untrustworthy. Jay later said, quote, Wilson changed sides three times within eight days and ended up facing both ways. And as predicted, the devaluation sent shockwaves throughout the British economy. It also threatened to tear the labor cabinet apart. With everything now more expensive, the government turned to slashing its own spending. It even charged more for services like doctor visits. 
One of the Labour Party's biggest achievements was the creation of the National Health Service back in 1948. The NHS allowed people to receive medical services for little, if any, cost. However, the government did charge small fees for certain items like dentures and eyeglasses. But in 1951, Gateskill wanted to raise the fees to bring in more money. This was one of the straws that broke the camel's back. Tempers flared and several members of the cabinet resigned. On April 23rd, Wilson left too. He was still a member of parliament, but no longer in charge of anything. He could vote on bills and make speeches, but he was essentially a free agent. Wilson's departure may have set him further from the levers of power, but his whole party soon joined him. The failure of Attlee's government turned the public against the Labour Party. In an election that October, the Conservatives won more seats, taking control of the government. Still, Wilson fought where he could. He became a constant thorn in the Conservative Party's side, publicly attacking the new Prime Minister and the party at large whenever he got the chance. In speeches, he raged against the increases in military spending and against the government's support of Joseph McCarthy's communist witch hunt in America. It wasn't that Wilson's views on communism itself had changed. It was just that the aggressive crusade against it terrified him more. In their lust to eradicate communists, the Americans blacklisted artists and censured government officials. Wilson, like many others, believed this kind of behavior could spark World War III. On the other hand, Wilson had business interests that might have influenced his thinking. He took a side job as an economic advisor to a lumber company that traded with the USSR. Part of his responsibilities included regular travel to Russia to assist with trade deals. This was problematic for his image. Wilson was a socialist, which at the time, many people felt was closely related to communism. Conservative Party newspapers were quick to point out the connection and imply that Wilson was up to no good. They wondered just how deep his connection with the Soviets ran. The press got an even juicier story in April 1956, when Wilson met an attractive young secretary named Marcia Williams. Marcia was taking notes for the British transportation minister during a diplomatic meeting when Wilson took a shine to her. That fall, he offered her a job. Marcia was a brilliant political tactician and soon became Wilson's partner and confidant in ways his provincial wife Mary couldn't. This closeness fueled speculation that the two were having an affair. Above all, Wilson needed Marcia's loyalty. Because he was an outsider, he didn't have many friends in Parliament. Marcia sometimes ate lunch with him in the cafeteria so he wouldn't have to eat alone. Despite not having many true friends, Wilson was good at making allies. When Gateskill became head of the Labour Party in 1955, Wilson made amends and worked his way back into the party's inner circle. When Gateskill died of lupus in 1963, it opened up another opportunity for Wilson. Wilson easily beat out the top two contenders for the spot. He was no longer the boring academic he was as a younger man. Now his speeches were full of energy and grand promises about the future of Great Britain. As head of the minority party, he still had very little power, but luck was on his side 
and it came in the form of a scandal, one that brought the Conservative Party's success to a screeching halt. The Profumo affair was plastered on newspapers throughout the UK in April 1963. John Profumo was the Secretary of War for the Conservative Party. That spring, police discovered he'd had an affair with a 19-year-old named Christine Keeler. Problem was, Keeler was also the girlfriend of a Soviet spy. When word got out, it caused a firestorm in the press. Politicians denounced it as a breach of national security. To make matters worse, the prime minister stood by Profumo until he confessed to the affair in June. The whole thing was a humiliating stain on the Conservative Party's reputation. But for Wilson, it was a gift from the universe. In a speech, he pointed to the scandal as proof of the Conservative Party's corruption. He said the problem stemmed from their core ideologies. The Conservatives believed that in order for the UK to thrive, the government needed to take a hands-off approach to big business. But Wilson saw them as rich leaders pursuing their own wealth over the prosperity of the country. In trying to hide Profumo's guilt, Wilson believed they demonstrated just how selfish they really were. Wilson played his part as the noble defender of morality. The next year, in October 1964, the Labour Party won the election. As head of the party, Harold Wilson became prime minister. Finally at the helm, he wasn't going to waste his shot. Coming up, Wilson inherits a nation on the verge of collapse. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. And now, back to the story. Harold Wilson, an outsider once dismissed as a dull technocrat, became the most powerful man in the United Kingdom in 1964. He did it through hard work, political savvy, and a whole lot of good luck. But if luck was to thank for his new position, it certainly wasn't on his side once he took office. When Wilson began as prime minister, England's national debt was equivalent to their entire GDP. Instead of paying for schools, roads, and welfare, taxpayers' money was lining the pockets of foreign creditors. This meant that more people were living in poverty, There were fewer college scholarships and worsening health care for the sick. With the crisis growing more dire, Wilson was faced with an eerily familiar predicament, devaluing the nation's currency yet again. After the humiliation of 1949, Wilson refused to consider it. Instead, they taxed imported goods, cut spending on big government projects, and let the economy limp along but it drove a wedge into his cabinet, a place already riddled with strife. Part of that conflict stemmed from Marcia Williams. 
She was the gatekeeper to the prime minister and his close advisor. This didn't sit well with some of his staff, who felt that her power came at their own expense. A month after Wilson took office, Marcia had a heated exchange with Derek Mitchell, the prime minister's other private secretary. Mitchell was upset that Marcia's duties overlapped with his own. In return, she accused him of being disloyal and tried to get Wilson to fire him. The other members of Wilson's cabinet were equally troublesome. In order to create party unity, Wilson placed many of his political rivals in high-level positions. They often resisted him on his policies and attacked each other in cabinet meetings. This friction would soon trickle into Britain's international politics. At the same time, a larger fight was brewing with America. In the early 1960s, the United States ramped up its war with the communist guerrilla fighters in Vietnam. American intelligence advisors believed that if Vietnam fell to communism, the rest of Asia might too. They framed their mission as a battle to save South Vietnam from communist tyranny. On the occasion of your New Year's celebration, my fellow Americans and I extend our very best wishes for the prosperity and well-being of the government and the people of Vietnam. In your struggle against aggressive forces of communism, the sacrifices that you have willingly made, the courage you have shown, the burdens you have endured, have been a source of inspiration to people all over the world. Let me assure you of our continued assistance in the development of your capabilities to maintain your freedom and to defeat those who wish to destroy that freedom. But the U.S. didn't want to go at it alone. President John F. Kennedy and his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, hoped to build an international coalition to lessen the cost of war for U.S. taxpayers. Plus, foreign support added legitimacy to America's crusade. So America turned to an old ally, the country they supported during World War II the same nation that owed them hundreds of millions of dollars in unpaid debt, the United Kingdom. American diplomats urged Wilson to commit to the war with words and bullets. It was an unspoken quid pro quo. If the British didn't help, it hurt their chances of favorable trade deals in the future. President Johnson's aide, McGeorge Bundy, went even further. He advised they withhold economic support for the UK until they put boots on the ground in Southeast Asia. Wilson needed the money, but he resisted nonetheless. Partly, it was personal. He loathed war and resented how aggressively the US was pursuing it. He often felt the UK was a buffer between the US and the Soviet Union, a voice of reason keeping two giants from tearing each other to pieces and the world along with it. His reluctance was also valid on a domestic level. The Vietnam War was hugely unpopular in Britain. He knew if newspapers published the names of any British soldiers killed in action, it could cost him the next election. So Wilson pushed back as much as he could, only giving in where he had to. He voiced his support for America's cause and mailed material aid to the American forces in Vietnam but he never sent a single soldier. This might be why his party won the next election in 1966. However, it was a hollow victory. 
The currency problem had only gotten worse in the intervening years. Once again, Britain was on the verge of bankruptcy. On July 20th, Wilson increased taxes and slashed budgets for government-owned businesses like railways and post offices. Meanwhile, the worsening fiscal crisis led to large strikes at the docks, bringing international trade to a screeching halt. Between the economy, the Vietnam War, and the workers' strikes, it seemed like England was falling apart. Each new day brought a torrent of bad news, and the effect on the Labour Party was crippling. Wilson was like the captain of a sinking ship. His cabinet members attacked him in meetings for his supposed lack of leadership. Some begged him to devalue the currency again, while others wanted to unlink it from the U.S. dollar. And beneath those policy disputes were layers of petty jealousy and personal animosity. While Wilson grew paranoid about the possibility of a revolt within his cabinet, the press began to turn on him as well. They called him a weak, corrupt, incompetent little bureaucrat. The strikes continued into 1967. Inflation crippled blue-collar workers' ability to buy staples like food and fuel. The taxes and budget cuts saved some money, but not nearly enough. Later that year, Wilson sent a telegram asking the United States for a bailout. The Americans said no. He had only one option, something he swore would be a last resort. On November 19, 1967, Wilson told journalists that he was reducing the value of the pound. He tried to convince the public it was a good thing and that it wouldn't affect them personally. Tonight, we must face a new situation. First, what this means. From now on, the pound abroad is worth 14% or so less in terms of other currencies. That doesn't mean, of course, that the pound here in Britain, in your pocket or purse or in your bank, has been devalued. What it does mean is that we shall now be able to sell more goods abroad on a competitive basis. This is a tremendous opportunity for all our exporters and for many who have not yet started to sell their goods overseas. No one believed it. To the general public, Wilson had become the epitome of everything that was wrong with the UK. Despite his promises of prosperity, Wilson failed to deliver. In the shadows, a dangerous tide was rising against him. When Wilson broke the news about devaluation, the London stock market plummeted. It was a huge hit to the pocketbooks of the rich and powerful. One of the disaffected was a man named Cecil King, who controlled the influential newspaper, The Daily Mirror. In 1968, The Mirror ran a series of articles calling for Wilson's removal. Insults once saved for darkened corridors were now said to Wilson's face. One of his own protégés referred to him as small-minded and incompetent. Former allies turned against him, and by the end of 1969, he was alone. No one was surprised when the Labour Party lost the election in 1970. Over the next four years, Wilson retreated to his bench in Parliament and attacked the new regime from the sidelines. However, he was desperate to return to power. Despite his battering, he wasn't out of the fight just yet. It helped that the new administration was dealing with its own set of problems. At the top of the list was Northern Ireland, which had exploded with violence in the 1960s. Ireland had a long and complicated history with Great Britain. 
For centuries, the British occupied the primarily Catholic island and sent Protestant settlers to the north. After a brutal war, the country was divided. The Southern Republic was mostly Catholic, while the North stayed Protestant and remained a part of Great Britain. For decades, tensions simmered in Northern Ireland. Catholics and Protestants lived in segregated communities and were treated unequally by the government. In August of 1969, riots broke out in the capital of Belfast, killing eight and wounding or displacing over a thousand. Catholic nationalists attacked British soldiers and civilians with guns and explosives. The British Army responded with an aggressive campaign to stamp out the rebellion. They imprisoned suspected terrorists without trial. And on January 30, 1972, British paratroopers executed 13 unarmed protesters. All of this fell into the lap of Wilson's successor, the conservative Prime Minister Edward Heath. Skyrocketing oil prices and coal miner strikes made the public wonder, had they been too quick to oust Wilson? The answer came by way of the 1974 election, when the Labour Party squeaked by with another victory. Wilson returned to his old job as Prime Minister. It was just as bad as he remembered, but this time he was prepared to handle it. He created a special unit of experts to advise his office on public policy. The mining strikes were ended with an agreement to raise pensions, and he sat down with Irish leaders on both sides. Objectively, Wilson seemed to be doing well, but he was still receiving bad press. A magazine called Private Eye was particularly harsh. They didn't just bash his policies, they went after him personally. They invented stories to drive a wedge between Wilson and his party. They even reportedly suggested that Marcia Williams was blackmailed by the KGB to make Wilson appear pro-Soviet. The smear campaign seemed to work. Within the Labour Party, right and left-wing factions refused to work together on key issues. Wilson spent most of his time trying to keep his government intact. It also made him paranoid. Whenever he traveled, he checked his hotel rooms for listening devices. The stress even took a toll on his physical health. During a plane ride to France in 1975, a sharp turn left Wilson gasping for breath. When they touched down, his doctor said he'd suffered heart palpitations. His wife, Mary, thought it was a sign for him to retire. Wilson seemed to agree, because by March 16, 1976, Wilson had visited the Queen. He alerted her that he was stepping down as Prime Minister. He claimed he'd been in politics long enough. It was time to give someone else a chance. But many found it hard to believe that someone so obsessed with power would suddenly resign. They felt there must be another reason. There'd been rumors in the press that he was an alcoholic. Maybe quitting was a way to avoid another scandal. Also, Jeremy Thorpe, the head of the Liberal Party, was in hot water at that same time over an alleged murder-for-hire plot involving a secret lover. Wilson and Thorpe were friends, so maybe Wilson was trying to keep his distance. But that might not have been it either. Two months later, Wilson called journalist Barry Penrose to his home and gave a different story. He said he had to resign because he could no longer do his job. People were tapping his phones. His staff was being burglarized. 
and his own secret service was behind it. Next time, we'll explore three conspiracy theories surrounding Harold Wilson's tenure and his abrupt exit from politics. Like conspiracy theory number one, a group of powerful businessmen, politicians, and members of the royal family plotted to overthrow Wilson's government in 1968. They wanted to replace him with a prime minister they deemed more competent. Conspiracy theory number two, Harold Wilson was a KGB asset working to subvert the United Kingdom on behalf of the Soviet government. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, Harold Wilson was driven from power by a shadowy group of intelligence operatives from inside his own government. By the end of his career, Harold Wilson was paranoid that spies were trying to destroy him. But it's possible to be paranoid and have someone plotting against you. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with the conspiracy theories surrounding Harold Wilson. For more information about the former prime minister, amongst the many sources we used, we found Dr. Ben Pimlet's biography, Harold Wilson, to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checking by Anya Bairley, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi there, it's Alastair from Parcast. You may have heard of the Somerton Man, Azaria Chamberlain, or the Wonder Beach Murders. But do you know the whole terrifying truth? Be sure to check out my new series, Crime Down Under, where we travel to the land down under to explore the most shocking true crime cases in Australian history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Down Under, and catch a new episode every Sunday, free and only on Spotify.